that geotargeting capability has tremendous potential when you use it for national brands by psychographically analyzing a list, seeing who the best customers are, and then finding more of them. The Doberman Dan Show. The Doberman Dan Show. For renegade entrepreneurs. Get ready for the uncensored, nothing held back, no BS reality of how business and life really work. Leave the sheeple to their lives of quiet desperation and get ready to experience an An exhilarating life of of unbridled unbridled freedom. freedom. Now prepare yourself because Doberman Dan's off the leash. I'm speaking with Ben Morris of Crystalytics. Um... Ben does what I like to call list magic or list sorcery. And I was just asking what's been going on and what you've been up to. And uh, if you wouldn't mind going over that again and, uh, you know, and sharing some of the things you've been working on. Well, what's really exciting, Dan, it's always fun to speak with you, but what's really exciting right now is that we are using some of our strategies toward geotargeting of traditionally non-geotargeted medium, like, for instance, Google AdWords or uh, banner ads, where we can go in and look at areas that have high per capita concentrations of people that are likely to buy a particular product or service that we determine from analyzing the database and go in and say, okay, this particular market is twice as likely as average to buy this particular product or this particular market is three times more likely and you can go all the way down to the county level or the city level or the zip code level and you can target in in these areas and really be able to improve the efficiency of those types of campaigns and it's all back to that traditional location, 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 the same as with uh, uh, site selection or the same as with where you put a franchise business. If you put it in a good location, you're going to do better. If you target a good geography where you have a lot of buyers or people who look like your best customers, you're going to generate a lot more volume. And and, and this is something that you can do with pay-per-click stuff? You can do this with any of the uh, uh, pay-per-click, uh, Google, Yahoo, all have a local function, and they were originally, I think, designed so that if you were a mom-and-pop dry cleaner in Kansas City and you had didn't want to get clicks from the dry cleaner but the same name in Boise or Birmingham, you could geo-target your particular area of the country. But that geo-targeting capability has tremendous potential when you use it for national brands by psychographically analyzing a list, seeing who the best customers are, and then finding more of them by going out and targeting areas on an AdWords campaign or a Yahoo campaign or any of the uh, banner ads, anything where the ad would be shown in a specific geography rather than throughout the entire country. So anybody doing, uh, so anybody doing any kind of pay-per-click ads, that even if they sell uh, nationally, could this apply to them, or more so somebody doing pay-per-click who just sells locally or regionally? 
it actually works very well for national companies because if you think about it, you let's just say, for example, that you're selling uh, dog training or uh, some kind of niche high-end dog product. Well, you're going to find that there are going to be some people who are dog owners that really like your stuff and are willing to spend maybe $50, $100 a head for an average order, whereas other people would not even think of spending that kind of money on their dog. They'll go and get the, a leash or dog food at the cheapest place they can find. So we take and look at the database of people who are buying premium high-end dog products from, for example, a national website. And then what we do is we look and we say, okay, the type of people that are buying this high-end uh, dog product fit these particular psychographic profiles. So therefore, uh, we're going to go and we're going to look for zip codes, uh, counties, even cities and entire metro areas that have a higher concentration of this type of person versus someone who is less likely to buy. So typically what we see on almost anyone's list is somewhere between a three and five fold variance when we look at a market. Like we might see that San Francisco is three times more likely to contain, uh, to have customers. Or we might see that Miami is five times more likely. Or we might see that a market in an area that was was a third or one-fifth as likely. So that really gives us a roadmap where we can determine where in any part of the country to turn on our marketing efforts, where it's worth to pay more, where it's worth to target. But it also allows us, since we can see what kind of people we're targeting, to make sure that we craft our message so that if we're targeting a Gen X single, we're going to have a different message than if we're targeting a mature years, 55-plus, double income, no kid with plenty of, of, of uh, income-producing assets, and they have different needs. They also have different uh, key response points. One of them is going to respond to a different message than the other. And when we take a look at a database, we not only know basic demographic information like age and income, but we also know psychographic information. And that psychographic information is where you can take two people that live right next door to each other that have identical age, income, uh, ethnicity, language spoken, education level, job, and be able to take and determine that one person is three, five, seven times more likely to buy your product or service than their next door neighbor because of what they spend their disposable income on. Wow. <laughs> that's that's like so the information you have available is is so deep that's almost scary. Um, well, a lot of people say that. And the thing that's interesting, Dan, is that we are utilizing, as background, most of the Fortune 100 companies out there use market segmentation uh, to be able to better define who their customer is. So what we're doing is all of the stuff that you typically see at the level of those Fortune 100 companies that allow them to get 
more business and to take more market share, oftentimes away from the small business, the locally owned, the entrepreneur. So what we're doing is really taking that same level of access to the information and level in the playing field by allowing a small business to have access to the same market intelligence and segmentation that a Walmart has or a Verizon or any of the major Fortune 100 companies would have and allow you to apply that in your own business. So so just so I understand some of the uh, the geo-targeting you can do, you know, let's say, again, in this example, I've got a business selling dog stuff, whatever, dog dog equipment, dog training stuff or whatever. So I'm spending X amount of dollars every month on Google AdWords, and so my AdWords are being shown pretty much uniformly throughout the country – and at the end of the month, I get, you know, my cool little report from Google that shows, you know, how many impressions I've had and of those impressions, how many clicks I've had and of those clicks, my cost per conversion. And I'm basing all of my, you know, decisions upon that. You know, if I do some more ads with Google, uh, do less advertising with Google, um, you know that it's pretty much based upon that information. What I don't know is that I may be spending X amount of dollars to have my ads shown in Boise, Idaho, and have people in Boise, Idaho clicking my ads. So that's you know costing me money every time they click my ad. But those people are eight times less likely to buy my products as the people in San Francisco. So I, Absolutely. I, I I'm ba- I'm making decisions based on the information given to me by Google, uh, which you know I may be making some really bad decisions. Whereas if I had this information, I could you know spend ten percent or whatever or less of my budget showing people my ads in Boise, Idaho, and eighty percent of my budget showing people my ads in San Francisco. Correct. That's right. Now, I will say that there are certain areas of Boise that are quite good, so I don't want to be picking on, on, on that area. But let's let's just look at it as an example, and that is that uh, when you are targeting an area and someone clicks on an ad for dog, bed, let, dog beds, let's say, and they go to your website, and let's say you sell premium dog bedding that is organic cotton and made with the finest materials and more expensive, but it's got you know, latex foam in the mattresses, and it's just really good for the dog. But it's an expensive product that is twice the price of a typical dog bed that you could pick up at Walmart. Well, a certain area, a certain psychographic profile may click on that ad, see the price, and it's like, well, I don't want to pay that for a dog bed. That's ridiculous. Whereas someone else might click on that same ad and say, wow, that is an amazing thing for my dog. You know, that's really going to help their joints because they're getting older. And I've read a lot about latex and how it's good for shaping to the contours of the, of, of, uh, of the, of the bones and joints and providing for restful sleep. For, for an extra 100 bucks, that is worth it for my dog to be comfortable and maybe cut down on the Rimadel. And I'd probably save more money 
uh, on having a lighter Remedil prescription. I, I'm going to go out and I'm going to get that. That's the difference in mindset and psychographic. And there is a tendency on a geographic area that oftentimes you've heard birds of a feather will flock together, and that is certainly a premise of market segmentation that you're probably going to find more people, for example, interested in the uh, uh, Boston Red Sox in an area of Boston than you are in Chicago. But on the other hand, when it comes down to people who are going to buy a suite or a season ticket to the Boston Red Sox in a high-end area of their ballpark, you probably have an even more select geography of the the city or the market where you, you would target and find more qualified buyers. The same thing is true of location in almost any part of the country. Now, the other thing, getting back to the dog example, one of the things that we never quite know when we look at a typical online campaign is, is the campaign not producing in a particular area because that area doesn't like what we have to sell or is something else at play? For example, we had a client that was doing something very, very basic. They were selling um, auto parts online. And what we discovered was that particular markets were not performing well for them. And they looked like they should be performing well from a psychographic standpoint. So what we did was we recommended that they geo-target those areas and hyper-focus on them and pay a little bit more to get their ads shown in those areas. And what we found was the cost per conversion dropped dramatically in those areas. And upon further review, what we learned was that by paying the extra and geo-targeting, we had bumped out the local car dealership that was very well positioned within good local AdWords strategy. So the clicks and the conversions and the money was in that market, but the national advertiser missed that because they weren't targeting into that market. They were paying the same for that quality market that they were paying for the same bid price for the entire country. So therefore, being a good market, a local competitor had gone in there and outbid them and gotten those clicks. When we changed that to where we outbid the local competitor because we knew where to go, where to tap, then our cost for conversion fell and we got the leads because we were ahead of them. But you can't just go out there and randomly eyeball and say, you know, I think I need to be in Beverly Hills or I think I need to be in uh, in uh, uh, the uh, western Colorado or I think I need to be in uh, uh, Stanford, Norwalk, Connecticut. What you have to do is go in and look at the actual psychographics of the people in the different areas and find out, is my psychographic profile of who's buying my stuff, do they live in an exurban area like uh, Lake County near uh, at the top of, uh, of uh, uh, the Chicago market, or do they live in an area that's more urban like downtown San Francisco, or do they live in a deeply rural area? And that allows us to really go in there and hone on where we target a campaign. It's not strictly limited to AdWords. It can also be applicable for ad networks where banner ads can not only be 
uh, delivered by the um, by the uh, uh, geography, but also at the individual cluster level, and that's where it gets really interesting because if you have, for example, if you know that you let's say there are 70 different market segmentation clusters and and there are numerous clustering systems, but the ones that we like a lot, there are two that we recommend. One of them is from um, uh, Axiom, which is the world's largest data aggregator, and it's called Personics. The other is Nielsen Claritas' system, which is called Prism. Uh, Personics breaks the world into 70 distinct clusters, so each cluster is a tiny little segment of the market, and the whole concept is these 70 clusters behave more like each other than they do their next-door neighbors. So presumably, if you pulled a cluster 10, which is a Generation X, double income, no kid, uh, or single, very motivated, younger person out of Washington, D.C., Boise, Idaho, and Birmingham, Alabama, they would have more in common with each other than they would their next-door neighbor. That's the whole purpose of clustering a list, is is to divide the market into a group of people that will behave on a somewhat similar fashion so they can be targeted from a marketing standpoint. And uh, um, when you do that, that has application not only for pay-per-click, as we've alluded to, also has huge applications as far as creative. It allows you to talk to five different Gen Xers. They may all be 35 years old, and they may be all in the same zip code. But there's a world of difference between someone based, especially at that age, homeowner, renter, married, single, age of first child, number of children, and you put all of that together with homeowner versus renter, and you have very big differences in spending power because, as you and I know, nothing affects the spending power of someone in that age range like, as far as discretionary purchases, like first mortgage. You spend all your money on the down payment for the house, and then everything goes to decorate the house and to do lawn care for the house and to pay for the house. First marriage, first child, multiple children, first divorce. All of those things have huge impacts on the ability of a Gen Xer to spend money on discretionary items such as an expensive dog bed or Internet marketing or anything else that we might be selling that isn't essential. And therefore, you can go in and look at five Gen Xers, and oftentimes the people that will be your best clients are the double income, no kid, and the singles that are still renting because more of the money is available to go to a discretionary purchase because it isn't fully committed to the mortgage and the family and the kids. Does that make sense? That that not only makes sense, if an entrepreneur, a marketer, or a copywriter totally grasps what you just said – um, it is the closest form of <laughs> magic 
and the ability to read minds I think that that we'll ever get. Um, well, first of all, I have, I have a big goal today. I have, a, you know, because I have a, I have an understanding of what you do. But the reason I wanted to talk to you was to to find out about, you know, everything you do. And and I know you don't have a lot of time, so you have to do that in a brief period of time. But what you just described, if if people understand the power of that, they're going to get really excited about it. You know, I I started out in mail order, you know, pre-internet, and the reason I liked direct mail so much was the ability to target and then the, the, the ability to match the message to the market. You know, we could go – we could go through and f- and dig and dig and dig in the lists and find the ideal lists, you know, with the with the ideal buyers who bought similar products, similar price points, blah blah blah. Or we could, you know, dig deeper and and get certain what they call selects, you know, um, you know, which might be some demographic information, male, female. Uh, you know, we want people who not only bought this product in this price range, they also subscribe to this magazine and that newspaper, but they don't subscribe to this newspaper, you know, and so we could get some really detailed information. And then when we wrote our message, the message was so tightly matched to the market that, you know, uh, you could just get a really killer response that way. You know, it's it's. Like we always used to say, it's shooting with a rifle as opposed to shooting with a shotgun. Now with everything you can do, you can do that and more. I mean you can base what, – what you can do what I just destru- described on steroids, but yet with pay-per-click, with, with uh, you know, various online advertising and media, media buys and other stuff. And if, if people understand the power of that, that's – almost unbelievable well the thing i was going to tell you is that it's also synergistic to a lot of the things that you just described like for example this is a real life story that we had we had a um, uh, a customer come to us and say i've tried to mail a self-liquidating offer based on uh, these buyers, this buyer's file I've been mailing, and I've mailed a variety of buyer's files, and I've mailed over 100,000 pieces, and I've managed to lose $5,500 on the front end. And my goal was to self-liquidate. Well, we all know approximately how much a piece of mail uh, that's sent out would cost. I mean, a postcard can cost anywhere between 40 and 75 cents, depending upon the list and the size of the card and the copy and the type of postage and all of that, but you get the idea that it it was almost paying for itself, but not quite. So we were having trouble getting over that hump. And so what we did was we looked at the list and again, going back to using that segmentation and keep in mind, we started with a buyer's file. So presumably all of these people bought the same product. And even though there were three different buyer's file lists that comprised the entire file that had been mailed, every one of them had the same characteristics. Those characteristics were that all 70 of the clusters were represented on the buyer's files, 
but the proportionality and the money that they spent and the response rate they had varied dramatically. And that's worth thinking about. You had the best performing cluster was less than 1% of the buyer's file list, but it was over 3% of the buyer's file revenue. <laughs> so even on a buyer's file, you had one cluster that was performing at 300%, and you had other clusters that were literally performing and sputtering around, firing on two of eight cylinders. And that's with a buyer's file, which is presumed, as you said, to be homogenous because it's somebody that has a specific behavior. So when you stack our stuff on top of that, what we were able to do and have done with customers are to go in and call a buyer's file down, and it varies from niche to niche and customer to customer and offer to offer. However, it is not unusual at all for us to wind up with somewhere between 35 and 60% of the list that we started out with in order to be able to still get 80 to 85% of the response. So from a standpoint of saving money on postal mail, that is huge right there. Think about it. 85% of the response from 60% of the people, 82% of the response from 50% of the people, 81% of the response from 38% of the people. Those are all ranges that we've achieved with various uh, customers and clients so that we're saving so much money on the postage. Imagine if we had, if this particular hypothetical example had only mailed the clusters that we identified as having a positive ROI, they would have mailed 23% of the list, saved money on the postage for the remaining 77%, and they would have made $4,200 on the front end instead of losing 5500 Wow. You know, that that's just amazing. Back in the, I guess, early to mid-90s, I did a very primitive version of this um, with some information I had obtained from uh, a direct marketer named Marty Chenard. Um, I mean, compared to the information that you now have available I mean, it's it's probably like comparing, you know, a Model T Ford, you know, to to a Rolls Royce. But you know, back then this was kind of cutting edge. We would we would take a list, um, and then divide it into to to what they called deciles, um, and, and the deciles were based upon the U.S. Census. Uh, bureau information, which was divided into certain zip codes based on prosperity. So the the zip codes that were in the less prosperous areas, let's say we we're going to mail a list of 10,000, we'd run it by those deciles and we'd figure out, well, you know, if we mail these first three deciles and cut out, you know, the the, the remaining ones, We'll actually make money in, on this mailing if we, you know, maybe just cut out half, we'll break even, you know. But like I said, this was the '90s. That was like so cutting edge back then. But 
it's so <laughs> now it seems so you know it seems like you know prehistoric compared to what you well, can do now. Well, here's the deal. This this is a great analogy, and I'm so glad you brought this up because what you are doing and described in the 90s is exactly what we're doing right now with pay-per-click and geo-targeted online. And it's in that equally primitive stage because IP address targeting is the weak link in the geo-targeting chain right now for what we do online. But if you look at it, it worked so well for you and now a decade later we're able to drill down even more and we can offset the rising cost of postage because if you look at it the product may still sell for about what it sold for maybe a little bit more but still about what it sold for in 1995 postal rates have gone up more so the with the with considering the huge cost of postage to people who are non-respondents, it's become more important to get more granular and target better than it was even in 1995. The beauty of what's going on now with the online world is this is the same thing right now using not necessarily deciles, but you get the point. Those top three deciles, if you will, 30% of the market may be where 50, 60, 70% of the revenue is. And for example, there are over 3,000 counties in this country. We did an analysis for a client and we concluded that if they targeted only 275 counties, they would get 70% of their revenue and therefore they could run their AdWords campaigns in those counties and avoid the counties that were largely almost 3,000 counties that were producing the other 30% of their revenue. Wow. And it's the same premise of what you're doing. It's just it's just applying it to you know, if you look at it, the ad the whole concept of what's going on right now on the online marketing space, and keep in mind you and I both have the advantage of being marketers that were very successful pre internet. So we understand old school media, we understand online and offline, we understand how to put them together. One of the things that I think has happened in the online marketing world is you've had cheap traffic and virtually free traffic in the form of cheap clicks, in the form of of email for free, in the form of article marketing, search engine optimization, and an expectation to where if somebody got really, really good at one of these little silos, whether it was SEO or pay-per-click or list building or banner ads or whatever, article marketing, they were able to get all the traffic they needed from that one trick pony. Now what's happening is Google will change the algorithm and all of a sudden months of SEO go down the drain. Emails are becoming increasingly more difficult to deliver and it really is no longer a free source because every time you mail that list, there's an opportunity cost that your sender score will be reduced in quality because you sent something that wasn't relevant to somebody. Or Yahoo flags you because you sent out more than a thousand emails from one IP address to a thousand Yahoo subscribers. Or what we're seeing right now with Gmail 
in particular that I've been testing where I've got two or three Gmail accounts and I will send the same content to the three accounts and consistently the accounts that I have not trained to get that type of material and content will not get it delivered and the ones that I have trained where I get a lot of content like that will pass through. That's huge because that you know, there's been some discussion about email filtering, but Gmail's is very good. My experience has shown because, for example, all of the online marketing or offers. I set up a Gmail account. I'm clicking and I'm reading autoresponders in the information marketing space. The next autoresponders message gets through. If I set up a clean Gmail account and I ignore those same then they don't get through. That's the same thing for type of attachments or type of feeds. So if I don't ever click on ads for toner refill, then I'm probably going to have a harder time getting a toner refill ad delivered cold to my Gmail than if I'm clicking on toner ads or if I never respond to dating messages or if I do, that'll affect the inbox deliverability, I feel, of every message in that niche. And I have tested it on my own Gmail accounts, but I've also uh, been reading quite a bit about the ability of the major providers to be able to do some what I would call contextual screenings of email. And I think that is something that once again means you've got to be more targeted. And that's where we come in handy because we can take an email list of 100,000 and if I can match 40,000 of those 100,000 with a physical address, all of a sudden you're not just emailing someone blindly and you have no idea who they are, you know that 40,000 of the people on your list, you know that you've got 2,000 doctors and that of those 2,000 doctors, you've got 1,500 of them that live in the elite suburbs in more than a $300,000 house that make that have incomes in excess of $250,000 a year and are worth more than $2 million. That allows you to craft that message to somebody in a way that you could never do if it were a disembodied, freestanding email. Same token, if you get a a screening back that this person's email indicates that they have zero net worth and they're a Gen X renter that makes $40,000 a year, that's going to completely change how you're going to sell that customer as well. And if they're both opting in within five seconds of each other to a site, completely different message, completely different sales funnel, completely different strategy for the uh, former versus the latter. And that's the kind of stuff that is the email marketing 2.0 that's going to take the people, the people who embrace that and and utilize real marketing principles rather than just a one-trick pony of doing something that is has worked in the past. Those are the are the are the uh, marketers that are going to move to the next level as we start having all of these free sources of traffic getting more and more locked down and restrictive um, as time goes on. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. It seems to me. <laughs> it's just like almost an unfair advantage. Um, I have to ask this because I've, I've got a I've got a wide variety of subscribers. I mean, I've got I've got like I like to refer to myself as a as, as a kitchen table commando, you know, kitchen kitchen table entrepreneur. I started my 
well, not my first business. My first successful business, I should say, was started on my kitchen table with nothing but uh, a yellow notepad, a pen, and two hundred dollars. And um, I've got people like myself uh, who've started like that bootstrap. I've I've got some subscribers who have huge, you know, have fairly large direct response and online businesses and you know i have one subscriber who uh uh sold his business a few years back for it was a, it was started actually that was a kitchen table business too started out as a newsletter and it grew pretty big and he sold that business a few years back for like 150 million dollars so I've got everything in between, kitchen table entrepreneurs to even some pretty big players and some pretty big players in the publishing industry. So obviously the big players are, you know, are thinking, I mean, gosh, this is something that we need to take advantage of. But I'm afraid maybe the, the smaller guys are thinking this is over my head. At what point would you recommend – somebody you know take a look at this like if somebody who's doing pay-per-click you know a little bit of pay-per-click somebody who's doing a little bit of direct mail or does this only apply to the guys mailing millions of pieces and spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a month in pay-per-click i don't think it really applies to for the pay-per-click i think that the ability to have a larger geography that has more points to target is definitely advisable. If you're in a small market like Tyler, Texas, or in uh, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, you probably are not going to realize much benefit from from being able to geo-target on the pay-per-click side. Now, having said that, one of the best strategies, I think, for using this is if you have a neighborhood business especially if you're interested in expanding. This is a virtually a magic recipe for anybody in any business, whether it's a pizza location or it's uh, uh, a dental practice or it's anybody that is neighborhood-specific, and it works like this. You look at your business, and let's say that it is, uh, let's just say it's a, uh, 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 it's pizza. And so you're doing deliveries, and you're do and every time you do a delivery, you capture a physical address, and eventually you look at the revenue and you cluster everybody's address that you do the physical deliveries on. Well, what you eventually learn is you say, well, almost over the course of the year, let's say that in a five-mile radius, 10% of the households did business with you, some kind of business. But 2% of the households are responsible for 50% of your delivery revenue in that five-mile radius. And it turns out that even though you thought it was families, it really is Gen Y singles, not Gen X singles, that are buying your pizza. Now, the thing is, why does that matter? Well, for one thing, you can target your radio advertising. You can maybe buy less country radio and classic rock and more new rock, and maybe you decide as well, gee, you know, I was thinking about opening up a store down in Fort Myers, but considering how old the population is, it looks like my best customers are young 
tip Gen Ys, maybe I ought to go to a younger market like um, maybe moving up to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina instead of down to uh, Fort Myers where everybody is literally uh, one of the oldest markets in the country. So from that standpoint, it allows somebody to decide where they want to expand their business because you determine what kind of folks already like you and then where you go for expansion is based on where there are more of them in the same premise of what is going on, the same pattern of where you would target your pay-per-click. And um, if you're, on the other hand, if you are a heating and air conditioning company and you're servicing an entire market and you're maybe, you've got 75 or 100 trucks and uh, every day you're out there and you've got that situation where is if the, if there's a freeze and there are pipes breaking uh, for plumbing business or if there's a heat wave and air conditioners start breaking, you suddenly have triage because you've got everybody calling and you can't possibly take care of all of these customers. So you're telling people no or it's going to take three days and you're like, I wish I could know which one of these customers is just going to take the cheapest repair they can find to their air conditioner versus someone who's going to pay for a new unit and someone who's a good customer that wants good maintenance on the unit? Well, you can now because if we've already analyzed your list of customers, we know exactly which people buy an air conditioner and do what would be considered in this case preventative maintenance versus crisis maintenance. Crisis maintenance is always a Band-Aid because someone doesn't want to pay for preventative maintenance. So a crisis maintenance customer in the air conditioning and heating business is worth far less than a preventative maintenance customer. So therefore, imagine the phone rings, and based on using our system, you can enter someone's phone number, capture the address, and get a score as to how likely they are to be a crisis index of maintenance or a preventative index of maintenance. So if they score a nine or more toward the preventative side, you figure out a way to get there immediately and get that business because if their air conditioner is broke, they're probably going to buy a new one. On the other hand, if someone scores a one and you know they're going to call five people and whoever shows up first, they're going to pay the least amount of money to and get three bids on it before they get a $45 repair done on a capacitor, you're going to pass on that business. That's 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 pretty exciting. I I've I can almost tell you here's a question I want to ask. I can almost tell you what what a brick and mortar a brick and mortar business owner is thinking right now cuz I've I've got several really sharp uh brick and mortar business owners who are subscribers, are really sharp marketers. Um uh, but a lot of brick and mortar business owners, because they're juggling like 40 million other things, their chief, you know, bottle washer, they, they've got to manage their employees. They got, they're in charge of marketing. This all makes sense to them. And, and of course they know they could, you know, save a lot of waste in their advertising and make more money with it. Um, here's what I'm getting at. You read the first issue of my newsletter where I talked about how all these copywriters and online marketers, you know, they're all trying to make money online where if they took those same skills 
and and offered to help brick and mortar business owners, it's almost like there's no competition there. You know, is this? Do you have any kind of program where a guy like that, a marketer, could take this program to a brick and mortar business and say, look, you know, this all makes sense, but I know you got 40 other things to do, so you know, I can imp- get this implemented for you. In other words, do you have any kind of affiliate program or anything like that? Oh, sure. We can do done-for-you programs for people, and uh, one of the things that can be effective is if you have a trusted copywriter or you have a trusted marketer, these strategies can be augmentative to anything that an advertising agency, a marketing coordinator, anybody that is working with a business already. And in fact, we encourage businesses not to disrupt what's already in place because we see what we do as being extremely augmentative to what a business can do, not replacing of it. And by that, I mean, if you're doing a lot of stuff right and you're getting, for example, a 1.5% response on your direct mail, and we can take that, do a tweak here or there, and bump the response rate up to 2.8%, well, then we've just created a lot more revenue for you without really changing the infrastructure. We're still sending out 10,000 pieces of direct mail a month or 3,500 pieces of direct mail or 1,000 pieces of direct mail a month, but we're sending them to a more qualified group so the response rate is higher and the return on investment is higher. So uh, the, the, uh, the ability, most small businesses are our target because when you get to be a certain size, and I think this speaks to philosophy, when you have an entrepreneur that is still in charge of the business and is directly impacted by the money saved or the ROI, you get better decisions. When you get to the point, and I think this is debatable about where it happens, but somewhere around 10 to 15 million in sales, you start having the birth of marketing mid-management. You have VPs of marketing, marketing coordinators, and what I would consider stakeholders, but not equity shareholders. And there are always exceptions, but I always like to tell the story of someone who was a coordinator, a stakeholder, and told me, yes, I know that this would increase our bottom line by 30, maybe 40%. But the reality is it would also increase my workload and I would get off work 20 minutes, 30 minutes later each day and I don't want to do that. Can you imagine an entrepreneur saying that to six figures? Probably not. (laughs) Yeah, highly doubtful. And And that's why, for the most part, that's why our target for our services usually involve working with either a C-level shareholder executive or someone who is very passionate. And uh, there are plenty of companies that appropriately compensate a VP of marketing or a marketing person so that if the company does well, they do well. Um, I found that when you're working with with a stakeholder where 
they get the same amount of money and the same salary, whether the company does well or not, you generally aren't going to get solutions for marketing that require extra work. And if you think about it, tweaking an AdWords campaign is a lot of work. But why do people do it? Because it's the difference between losing money on AdWords and making money on AdWords. Because AdWords is so accountable, you do not have the luxury, if you're an AdWords manager, to sit back and lose money for your client or they'll find someone else to do the job. And it's not like you can't add up uh, the click-through rate and the conversion rate and get a cost per conversion and determine if you're making money or not. One of the things that happens with more traditional marketing like radio, TV, newspaper, uh, outdoor sports marketing is there's no clear ROI. If I spend $10,000 on the radio, how am I going to track that at the sandwich shop or at the pizza location or uh, at any number of local businesses? The answer is I can't very well. Uh, because even if you put a mention you heard this ad on the radio and get a certain offer, you're still not going to have a measurable response, certainly to the level of the kind of unequivocal ROI you can draw from an AdWords campaign. So I think that that's where we're, that's where sometimes it's hard for a business to adopt something. But ultimately, we are moving in offline and online toward a very accountable, what you and I have talked about before, Dan, is a very accountable direct response model. And I think that one of the things that we're going to see disappear, I believe, within the next few years is the idea of, oh, well, we don't know what the campaign did, but it raised our brand or we got some buzz off of it. We're not going to, that luxury is not going to be out there for people who can't generate sales and make the cash register ring to continue to be able to, to succeed because there's too many accountable media and I think lame uh, radio campaigns that don't produce results are going to be replaced by action-oriented campaigns that do get maybe not as measurable as an AdWords but certainly be able to get the uh, the awareness that, hey, we know, we ran radio spots this week, and here sales went up $1,000. We were off the radio the week after, and the sales still held through. We were off the radio two weeks after that, and they started to tail off. The third week, they were really back down, but then we started radio, and by golly, they pulled back up again. We can't prove the exact dollars from radio, but we know that every time we're on the radio, we stop. At the very after being on there for three weeks, and the fourth week is the very best week of all, and it trails off again, and then we hit it again, and it goes back up again. So eventually, we've had this pattern enough that it's irreputable. Radio's impacting our sales. There's still a there, there's there's definitely a form of accountability. Of course, the, the not to the same extent of accountability as you can get in other media, but there still is accountability there. And that's okay, because ultimately our goal is not to make the media accountable. The goal is to be able to get the maximum ROI. I'd rather not have the full accountability of the media and maximize my ROI than to say, I made a hundred grand less this year in sales, but boy, I was able to track it a whole lot better. <laughs> Good point. You know, I mean, I don't mind. I want to have as much accountability as possible, but I don't want to sacrifice results and sales because using that example, I would never buy radio because I can't track it as well as I could AdWords or direct mail piece. But the reality is I know from years of experience 
that you have different type of respondents. If you have a radio respondent, they are very different than an AdWords respondent, just like, for instance, someone that is on AdWords with uh, search is a very different respondent than someone who is on AdWords from the content network, or Google from a content network. I shouldn't say AdWords, but from a content network standpoint, you've got someone out there cruising around looking at stuff, and the goal of the campaign is to interrupt their search of information and perusing the web with something that's interesting. If you've got someone on the search side, you know well and good. They're looking for something, and they want information, and you're trying to say, here, my stuff fits your needs. Completely different mindset. Exactly. And now, I want to ask a selfish question, but uh, but th- this, will, this will apply to other people, too. But I'll use myself in exa- as, a, as an example, because, like I said, I am selfish and I'm, you know, applying you for free advice. Um, my Doberman Dan newsletter that I launched a few months back, um, I just initially launched it online to a small list of email subscribers, and and I just started doing research. Um, of some, uh, uh, well, I did direct mail too, but the direct mail I did was to, to, to my buyers list, people who had bought products from my, my website. So, you know, my naturally my, my response rates online and my response rates in direct mail were, you know, were really high because it's a house list, but I've just started doing some research to do some testing in direct mail to uh, further promote my newsletter. Now, what what can you do as far as like list selection stuff? If if I gave you a list of my current subscribers, which at this point I, I, I just be you know I'm just guessing based on my observation. I have no scientific data or any hard data to back this up, but it's all over the place. It'll be you know. Small kitchen table entrepreneurs, um, some online marketing guys, some guys who sell ebooks on ClickBank, uh, some guys with some really big online businesses, um, some guys with some really big offline publishing businesses. It's like all over the place. If I gave you a list of current subscribers and I said, Ben, I want to rent lists of people most likely to become a subscriber to my newsletter. What can you do with that? Well, the the thing I would say is we don't know until we get into it. Now, when it comes to people who are uh, buying heating and air conditioning repair or pizza or uh, buying overall DISOP uh, or government grant programs online, we have enough historical data that I know what that type of person and how they behave. On the other hand, uh, I'm sorry I'm in a windy area, so apologies if there's a little wind noise. On the other hand, we don't know exactly what kind of person is attracted to the Doberman Dan newsletter. One of the things that happens is we all tend to think of it as well, my newsletter appeals to chiropractors. My newsletter appeals to entrepreneurs. My 
And the thing is that we tend to classify people sometimes by the wrong category. We say it's by their vertical. Are they doctors? Are they people with high education? Are they people that are uh, millionaires? And one of the things that we know for a fact, and I'll use the most extreme example, education is probably the least predictor of the likelihood of someone buying anything. Because just because someone has their PhDs that will spend thousands of dollars on a snow ski vacation and their PhDs that don't even know how to snow ski. So therefore, if you targeted PhDs for a snow ski vacation to western Colorado, it would probably perform about like a baseline spray and pray list would because high education is not correlated with that particular behavior. In your case, what you'll probably find is that there is a highly correlated pattern, call it entrepreneurship from a psychographic standpoint, are people who are highly motivated to improve themselves, uh, to make to, to make a difference in terms of what they're doing, to, to think outside of the box. You know, there are all of these personality tests, the DISC, the Myers-Briggs, all of these things. And I think that to a certain extent, you know, there's a there's an entrepreneurial self-improvement uh, achievement profile. And I see the same type of clusters that typically do well for most things that promote self-improvement, which really ultimately you're talking about improving someone's results uh, in their marketing or they wouldn't be subscribing to your newsletter unless they're just a student of marketing and your content is very interesting and and very well laid out. So, I mean, you know, it could also be uh, uh, something that someone would enjoy reading from an entertainment standpoint. But what you find is typically the more rarefied the behavior the easier it is to find a real pattern with a smaller list. So, for example, if I, and the one I always use is, and and always give it some extra plug in publicity because I like him, is Yonick's Mavericks Business Adventures. Now, you know that that's a group of guys that Yonick Silver has gathered, that he goes on these exotic business adventure with, to a road rally up and down the California coast with uh, Jean-Paul Jordan from uh, Paul Mitchell Systems and Patron. Or the next time, it's they're all in Baja running uh, uh, buggies around on the Baja Desert, or they go to Iceland or whatever. Well, the number of people that can spend five figures, take a week off, and hang out with other entrepreneurs during odd times of the year that is a very rarefied behavior. That's not a typical convention goer at a marketing conference. So those people are going to be very much alike. On the other hand, if you clustered a list of people of maybe equal size who went to some kind of American Advertising Principles or Direct Marketing Association conference, you'd have a mixed bag of people that were very different in terms of age, income, ethnicity, urbanicity, education, um, geography. So you see, there's an example of a real niche marketing list that could easily determine that you know half the people might even be in the same cluster out of 70, or maybe a third would be, or whatever. Whereas you might have all 70 clusters represented on a direct marketing association event. So the more rarefied the behavior the more likely you are to find people with a smaller list. 
And, you know, for instance, someone drives me all the time, which is a, you didn't ask me explicitly, but how big of a list do you need to know where your best people are? Well, if you're doing something very, very rarefied, you can probably get by with a much smaller list than if you're doing a mainstream uh, main mass appeal product that everybody is buying. Then you're going to need more uh, grant. Then you're going to need more sample to really get the granularity because you know you're wondering, uh, you know, which of these subsets. I've got a lot of people that are married, but I've got a lot of people that are single. I've got a lot of people that are Gen X, but I've also got a lot of Gen Y. I've got a lot of seniors. Who is buying this? Do you see what I'm saying, though? The more rarefied, we're going to start seeing everybody turns out to be Gen X in a narrow age band between 35 and 40 and single. Well, we've got a pattern, especially if they all turn out to be renters that have high disposable income, well, then you've got a really nice profile there, and you can eliminate 80% of the 35- to 40-year-old Gen Xers because they're either married or they own a house or they have children or they have no discretionary income. And if your market turns out to be hyper-targeted toward Gen X, 35- to 40-year-old singles that have no disposable, that that are renters with high disposable income, then that's a real tiny niche that you might suddenly discover. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And so we look at the list, like we would look at people who subscribe to the Doberman Dan letter, and there's always the possibility that it would flatline. And a flatline is, gee, uh, Dan, we looked at 100 subscribers, and each one of them is different. We have no idea who's subscribing to your newsletter. Now, a pattern is, gee, Dan, 100 people you really can't draw much conclusion from, but we can tell you that 60 of the 100 all fell in the same cluster. The odds of that happening are virtually astronomical by chance, that you would have 70 clusters and you have 60 of 100 people fall into one of them. That's a pretty high odds. That means we've probably got a pattern that we can take to the bank or we can replicate And when we go to a buyer's file, we look for those people in addition to the buying behavior of buying marketing materials. And uh, then it becomes easy. Then if you know that these five clusters are 60% of your business and the other 65 or the other 40%, then not only do you do the buyer's file, you buy the buyer's file and you only mail to those people that are in those five clusters that are 60% of your revenue, very much like what you talked about back in 1995 for targeting the top three tercels. So Death you save revenue. yourself a ton – first of all, you save yourself a ton of money in printing and postage and mailing people who will be much less likely to respond, and the people that you do mail, you get a much higher response from those from those clusters. Exactly. And the other thing is this stuff is so powerful. You can hear the sirens in the background right now because they don't want us to know about it. Just kidding. <laughs> you can hear the sirens in the background. Yeah, I mean it really is – it is literally an unfair advantage. And, well, you what, know. I was, what, I, yeah, what I was going to tell you though is that literally it gets smarter every time because let's take, for example, that you and I target – six clusters, and we say these are the clusters that we want to target. Well, for whatever reason, 
let's say that we got two of them wrong and they just flatline, they perform horribly. They don't, then we stop mailing them. And we always are looking out for more groups that we can add to the mix. Because if we find out that there's one particular cluster on a buyer's file that is hyper responsive, there's always a unique chemistry between the buyer's file and the clusters. For example, you might have a buyer's file with people who have bought from the BizOps space, but yet for that particular buyer's file, the people that are most likely to subscribe to your newsletter may be an older group of clusters that are more affluent. On the other hand, with another BizOps from the same type of space, but a different buyer's file might appeal more to Gen Xers. So there's a unique chemistry not only between the buyer's file and the clusters, but the buyer's file, the cluster, and your offer. So that's where it really gets interesting because you may know, for instance, that a particular uh, buyer's file performs well for your newsletter with older people. So therefore, on that buyer's file, we target older clusters. On the other hand, for another buyer's file, you may know that it's more biz and it appeals to people that are in an unstable situation and are seeking to subscribe to your newsletter as an opportunity to learn marketing because they're on tough times and they just fire their ad agency. Well, that's a different group of people. And the message is... And the message should be different to each of them, too. Right, but there are things in the newsletter that resonate with both of them. And in a sense, if it's about marketing, you can have the same content delivered with the same intentions and the same goals, but the reasons that motivate different people to respond. If I've got a marketing director and I'm uh, on my payroll and I just want to be able to make sure that I know enough to make sure that the right stuff is happening, that is a completely different market for your newsletter than somebody who is like, I have to market my own business. I don't have a choice. I can't afford professional help. But they could benefit from the same article and the same content, although in different ways. True. Good point. And, but the sales letter to sell those people could be different. The sales letter could emphasize to the, to the entrepreneur you know, one thing. Um, you know, the sales letter to the to the biz op crowd could, em, you know, could oh, totally. could have a different I mean, language, you know. Perfect example of that is what John Carlton says about simple writing system. He says, take simple writing system if you're an entrepreneur for no other reason other than to be able to spot somebody who's writing copy for you on your nickel trying to promote your business that doesn't know how to sell. On the other hand, if he's selling to a writer, he's Obviously, the writer's not the end user. Take simple writing systems so you can write stuff that sells and be able to go out there and get clients. Completely different message for the same product and the same content. That's a per- that's a perfect example. I just want to reiterate something that you know somebody you know you don't have to be in Agora or a, you know or a or a Rodale or, you know, some huge direct response company to benefit from this, you know, even us, uh, even us small time guys, um, you know, this is something we can, we can benefit from. And, you know, just because you're not a huge player, uh, don't let that, you know, stop you from, 
you know, contacting Ben and looking into this, right? Absolutely. I mean, the thing about it is, is that uh, if you have uh, a marketing budget of two hundred dollars, you're not going to be able to do much of anything. But on the other hand, if you are a business that has a marketing budget that you know you're going to be spending at least, and I would say a business is spending somewhere between $500 and $1,000 a month, that's when you start being able to benefit from it because whether the strategy is to utilize um, local targeting of uh, your direct mail or whether that you're to the point where you're asking yourself, can I break away from shared mail or marriage mail like Valpac or Adpo or the newspaper inserts and do my own piece with my own content? Do I have the critical mass to do that and deliver to those households that are uniquely qualified? Uh, that makes a big difference for somebody. And so that's kind of the starting point. But if you do that right, you can. I've seen people grow $1,000 ad budgets into $10,000 ad budgets in three years because they're getting response on it. Because after all, how long are you going to be buying $5 bills for 2 bucks forever? Mm-hmm. All you have to do is if you reliably are able to figure out how to convert any advertising medium to profitability, you're going to keep doing it forever as long as your goal is to maximize your profit. So you can really – you could even have a, a company that has no advertising budget, and if you're sitting there as a restaurant that has $10,000 a week in sales – what are you really what are you really doing? You're generating five hundred dollars a week at five percent of sales for marketing. Now you could just ignore that or you could take that five hundred and say, I'm gonna take two thousand dollars and I'm gonna try to see if I can grow my business. And depending upon your trade area and depending upon uh, the uh, unique combination of what percentage of the trade area is related to the whole market. You might decide if you're in a small town, you might buy the local radio station because everybody within the sound of the radio station might be a, a good prospect for you. On the other hand, if you're in Chicago, you're clearly not going to be able to buy radio. Well, uh, two spots could use your entire radio budget, your budget for the month. So what you do instead is look at where your folks are coming from and you target direct mail. And you mail out and you make an offer. And then when the offers come back, you look and say, wow, I mail to the whole neighborhood, but all of these people under the age of 30 didn't respond, and everybody under the age, over the age of 45 didn't respond either. I've got a target of 30 to 45. The next time you mail, you only mail the, the half of the list that was 30 to 45. And then you get into saying, wow, I wonder if I segmented this list, I would do any better. And then you realize that everybody that's responding, 70% of the people that are responding between the ages of 30 and 45 are married with children. Well, now you're on to something else, and you're like, well, the next time I'm going to only mail to people who are 30 to 45 that are married with children. And then you get a response back, and you say, wow, and every one of them owned their own home and had lived there for at least three years or a significant portion did. So you see every mailer, you learn more and you eventually hone it down so that you are advertising to the people that are most like your hyper responders. So you're growing your business, your advertising promotes an ROI. And then from there you say, you know, 
I'm doing so well, I'm going to open up another restaurant on the other side of town. Well, where am I going to go? Where there are people that look exactly like the people that are building my business successfully on this end of town. You'd be surprised how many people throw a dart for real estate site selection, and at the end of the day, they're spending all of their time with the 5 or 10% of their locations or the one bad location that's killing them, as opposed to all the good locations that are making money. This is you know, inc- incredibly powerful stuff that most people don't know about. That's why I keep saying it's, it, it's, it truly is an unfair advantage. I, I want to hit you up with something that you're totally unprepared for because we didn't talk about this at all <laughs> before the call. So, uh, you know, if we need to edit thing, this out, no big deal. But I still want to no, ask No it. worries. The, the, the only thing that just for a brief edit, since we may be editing to say we're going to edit, is that I'm, I'm in a bit of a time trouble. So I need to uh, – I believe my time check here is uh, – I've got another call in about seven minutes, and I need to prepare for it and get fired up. So I just want to make sure you know that. But other than that, we're good. Okay. Hopefully, I, th- I think we can handle this quickly. There's there's a huge, huge, huge market for this, and and there's only one Crystallytics. But I've got a lot of really sharp subscribers who are well-trained copywriters or well-trained marketers and who will immediately see an opportunity here that they could, in addition to their existing clients, they can make a complete business out of this and offer all these services to you know businesses that they're already working with or in their local area or whatever. So are you willing to work with people like that? Oh, absolutely, and we do work with people, and we have we have so many different sets of services that are out there. For uh, we're very much interested in working with the uh, what I would consider the smaller marketing consultants with the uh, smaller local clients, because one of the things, and this is something that you go back to the very beginning of our conversation, this is the stuff that big business. Fortune 100 companies have access to that allows them to grow their business with this kind of market intelligence. What we're doing, and we've made a choice in this area, is that we are targeting this same level of access to smaller businesses, and we want to be able to work with uh, consultants that are, are focusing on small business as well, and we can help you grow the business so that you can gain a market share. And the, uh, the the leverage for someone who's maybe a local SEO, but that's what they're doing right now, well, by utilizing this, they can bring to the table stuff besides just search engine optimization. And I think as we talk about the uh, the fact that the market is getting more like regular marketing used to be where you have – someone who understands the overall organic picture of advertising and marketing rather than someone who just does SEO and someone else does the social media, someone else does a pay-per-click, someone else does the, uh, uh, the offline advertising. I think we're getting back into the world where we're going to see the merger of all of these mediums, and rather than having the traditional ad agency model, I think that if an SEO has a relationship or a... Uh, graphic designer has a relationship with a client that they will function as 
kind of the account rep in the old advertising agency model do what they do with their area of subject expertise, be a copywriter, graphic designer, search engine optimizer, but then work with subject matter experts that are able to come in and give that customer, our client, exactly the best of all worlds so that you really have a best of breed handling every uh, every single local client. So if a copywriter is working with a local client, they have a SEO, they have uh, a list provider, a printer, a strategist for media. They're not limited to just be able to do that one area they do. If the client says, you know, I've got a hankering to do radio, then they have the ability to be able to have that expertise. And that's what we do with all of our um, with all of our private clients is that we use that model, and that's, for example, why you know you and I might be working on a copywriting project for a client. Exactly. So I know I know I really appreciate your time, Ben. Um, I learned a lot. I know you got to go to your next call. So if somebody has a business that uh, they want to talk to you more about the services that that y- you offer and can help them with, or if somebody is a, a consultant or copywriter or whatever, and they recognize the huge opportunity to be able to offer these services to clients, how should these people get in touch with you? Uh, the, best, the best bet is... Uh, I obviously travel around a lot. Uh, I can uh, uh, I can send you uh, contact information. My assistant Leanne is very good at uh, setting up uh, uh, times that we can talk. My first stage is to make sure that I have something that somebody can truly be helped by. And uh, if you email Leanne L E I G H A N N E at Crystalytic spelled K. R I S T A L Y T I C S dot com. If you will email her, and it's always helpful to give as much background as you can so that we can make a determination. Uh, we, we obviously do get a lot of inquiries. We try to respond back to all emails. I don't have the autoresponders. Uh, I'm very much, I have to look at each person's situation uniquely, and if I can help somebody, I will. If it's something that, you know, for instance, I've got $200 to spend, I can't really help you with that, but I might be able to make a suggestion of why don't you take your $200 and do you really just that all you have? What, what's the size of your business? There may be ways where you can do more than that. And given our background of working with business and marketing for over 20 years, we're very good at knowing what small business can do and how they should go about it. And when we know what the problem is, as clearly articulated as possible, then we can uh, uh, come back with suggestions and solutions. We may not be able to help everyone from just a, a, a limitation to um, largely the size of the business and the budget, but we may be able to make some suggestions where someone can do something themselves that's reasonably a good start and get you on the right road. That sounds good, and you've gone into a lot of details on this call, but your website also at crystallytics.com has a, a nice overview of of what you can do, too. Cause, so, cause, could right. you spell that out again, please? I will. Uh, it is K-R-I-S-T-A-L-Y. 
P-I-C-S, crystallytics.com. And I will tell you that if you have trouble with that one, you can always remember cluster with a C, clustermylist.com. That'll get you to the same place, and sometimes it's easier to remember than that than to how to spell something. So you've got clustermylist.com or K-R-I-S-T-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S.com. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Ben. I really appreciate your time. I feel like you let my subscribers into uh, just a completely unfair advantage, and I appreciate it. Awesome, man. Well, listen, we appreciate you, and always good to catch up and and definitely uh, look forward to uh, catching up more, and uh, thanks for everything. Sounds good, Ben. Thank you. I'll talk with you again soon. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Doberman Dan Show for Renegade Entrepreneurs. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And also make sure to head over to DobermanDan.com and subscribe to all the free tools, tactics, and secrets to help build your business quickly so you can experience the Renegade Entrepreneur lifestyle. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes where our guests reveal their best secrets for financial independence and living a completely free lifestyle.